Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We are rebooting in our 12th season by revisiting themes from our first season. On this podcast, brave audience members let go of inhibitions and took to our stage to share stories inspired by the theme, Hooked, Stories of Cravings and Compulsions. It's story time. Cindy Williams, everybody! Hi. So uh, my best friend uh, Tiffany back here talked me into coming. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking and thinking and thinking, what is my biggest compulsion like? And I got all of these stories, story after story. I'm like, what do I do that's PG? And finally, it's like, with all of these stories, I mean, really, my compulsion is stories. So um, it all started when I was about four years old. And I went to visit my Aunt Mary in California. And she volunteered in the library at a little Episcopalian church. Uh, And I went with her every day. And she let me use the swing line one day. And I became immediately addicted to the swing line stapler. I was stapling everything to the springtime (laughs) bulletin board. Flowers, sure. My tiny holly hobby purse, you betcha. And I just kept going and going until they caught me, right? And then they're like, what can we do with you? Read to me. Tell me a story. Tell me a story. And so then I followed them around, all the librarians, including my auntie, begging for stories for like two days. And finally, she had been clearing the shelves. So she reaches into the trash can and wipes off a Dr. Seuss book, which obviously we would not do now. And, (laughs) And... She hands me this Dr. Seuss book and has me go sit down, and she teaches me how to read. Like, right there. I was four years old and just absolutely excited to be away from home for the first time and to be in a library where I kind of had carte blanche and uh, could go anywhere I wanted. And so she taught me how to read this Dr. Seuss book, and before you knew it, I was in a corner with a stack of books like this, you know, four years old, figuring out the words, and it didn't bother you unless I couldn't sound it out. And so, and that just started a lifelong passion and uh, for books and stories and libraries, really. Um, So I read that book, and I read probably... 15, 20 more, but I just kind of kept the same stack because, you know, I could tell that I had been pushing my luck with the whole swing line thing. And and then I went home, you know, from my vacation. Mom, mom, I learned how to read. And she's like so proud. She's taking me everywhere. Oh, she can read. She can read. And, but then, you know, it wasn't as much fun when we got home and I found her bookshelf and she's like, put the Harlequins away. You're four. (laughs) And so then it became a kind of a game, because this is like 1979, right, Uh, to find enough media for me. Uh, How how much would keep me out of the things I shouldn't touch? You know, it took me from being, you know, pulling on everyone's shirts and apron strings all the time looking for another story to just looking around the shelves and seeing what I could find, and that was, you know, fairly dangerous. I was very inquisitive, and I could sound out almost anything by the time I got home that summer. So, uh, yeah, I, 
I read some things I probably shouldn't have as a child. <laughs> probably shouldn't have uh, let mom catch me every time, although eventually she did give me the worst when I was like 30, and she's, she brings out you know this kind of like mid-80s smut, and she's like, you might as well have it. <laughs> I was like, I've probably read it more than you. <laughs> so... <laughs> So yeah, and, and then that turned into telling stories and asking other people for stories and it just continued throughout my entire life until eventually finally got that library science degree and uh, you know, little design research so I can get the story myself. And it all started with a slightly unsanitary copy of uh, Dr. Seuss, I believe it was, If I Ran the Circus, which they don't print anymore because it is very racist. But, you know, I was four. I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> and in 1979, I mean, half the people around me probably had no idea. So uh, that, that was my first book. <laughs> and that is how I got here, I guess. Thank you. Annika, or Annika, if I'm being fancy. Here she comes. Welcome. You have five minutes to share your story on Hooked. Hi, it is Annika. My name is Annika. And when I was a kid, uh, we were like partially kind of raised by my grandpa. My mom was a nurse who worked 12s, and my dad worked like usually 7 to 3. So we'd go to my grandpa's house a lot. And when you spend that much time with a grandparent, you get really comfortable at their house. And I remember... Uh, I was probably like six or seven years old. And to preface a little more, I've always been like, I think my favorite sugary drink has always just been lemonade. I feel like that is a good staple American drink. Um, and I was just like, I think my dad had just arrived to pick us up. So it was like a late afternoon. It was probably the summer because that was usually the time we went over to his house. And so it's like three o'clock on a really hot Boise afternoon. And I, like my dad and my grandpa were in some other room talking about whatever. And I'm just going through my grandpa's fridge trying to find some sugary beverage to consume to fuel my little six-year-old body before I go home to my dad and give him hell for the rest of the evening. And so I find my grandpa always had, like, he was obsessed with, um, like, Arrowhead water bottles. And he always would drink water out of Arrowhead water bottles and nothing else. And it had to be the one with the nipple on it. And he insisted that we clarify that it had the nipple on it. And so I found one of my grandfather's Arrowhead water bottles with the nipple on it in like the bottom shelf of the fridge, and it was full of lemonade. I was like, yes, perfect. So I just start absolutely chugging it, like downing it. And my grandpa comes back in the room, and he's like, Ani, did you drink that? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, grandpa. And I think I'm like literally crouched down. Like I remember being crouched down on my knees and like right in front of the fridge, just like sucking this down like a little six-year-old. And then my dad comes in the room and my grandpa just has this look on his face and that, that feeling of like mortification, embarrassment that you can only feel that deeply when you're a child sets in. And I remember feeling my face get so hot and knowing that I had done something wrong but not sure what. And then my grandpa said, that definitely had alcohol in it. <laughs> so I'm really about to go give my dad hell for the rest of the evening. And my dad and my grandpa, I don't really remember, I was so young, but they're kind of just going back and forth, like, well, how much alcohol did it have in it? And that's one of the details I don't remember. Being a six-year-old, I probably wasn't, you know, didn't really know. Um, and we're debating, and I'm just literally still sitting there in front, of the, in front of the fridge, 
And then my grandpa looks up about eye level and sees another water bottle full of lemonade, another Arrowhead water bottle, and he takes that one out of the fridge and he takes a swig of it and says, oh, this is the one that has alcohol in it. <laughs> and so, disclaimer, my grandpa and my dad did not accidentally let their six-year-old have a shit ton of alcohol. It was totally fine and I did not get wasted when I was six years old. And it was all good, and I, I did really enjoy the lemonade, so I'm glad that, um, despite the embarrassment, it all ended up okay. <laughs> Mr. Dave Lee. Good to be back. Uh, the first part of this story is actually a story of compulsion, uh, compulsion that I borrowed from Henny Youngman. You all know Henny Youngman? Take my wife, please, the king of the one-liners. Well, he used to tell a story about these two brothers that lived with their elderly mother. And one brother got compulsively attached to this cat he adopted. He played with the cat, couldn't be separated until one day he won a trip to Europe. So he got to be separated from his cat for a while, but he was calling every day to check on it. And one day he called his brother and said, how's my cat? The brother said, he died. The brother said, whoa, harsh, man. Couldn't, couldn't you have broke it to me more gently? You could have told me one day, hey, he's on the roof. We can't get him down. He fell off. He broke his leg. We took him to the vet for surgery. He didn't quite pull through. You, know, you could have broken it to me easier. You could have softened the blow. And the brother said, yeah, I'm sorry. I should have been more gentle. Sorry about that. And the brother said, oh, that's OK. By the way, how's mom? He said, she's on the roof. <laughs> Well, I tell you that story to update you on another story I got to tell a few years ago. Some of you might have heard it before. It was one that was made into a musical by Lita Harris Neustetter. It was a story about how I was anxiously awaiting the results of an MRI to see if I had a recurrent brain tumor. And it was a celebratory end when it finally came back and said, no evidence of recurrent neoplasm. And I'm blessed to say that I've been blessed with 11 years of similar happy MRIs. Unfortunately, the recent news has been not as good. This thing started to show its ugly head again last summer. And, uh, and uh, initially, the doctor was very optimistic it's something they could manage with treatment. But so far, it's not turned out quite that way. I had a couple rounds of chemo and then had another MRI in December. And the doctor talked to me afterwards. And when the doctor says things like, this is the hardest part of the job, it's not what we had hoped for. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you, and what I'm trying to come to accept over the last few months, I'm on the roof. Uh, Brandon, are you a surfer? Brandon? Okay, I didn't think my name was gonna get picked, but. Uh, my name's Brandon, I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. I'm here visiting my mom. And uh, who here likes fishing? Oh, we're good. We got about half the people. So, um, my dad recently bought a place in, uh, on the Quijack River in Alaska. It's in a village called Agiagig. We call it the cabin. Um, but basically, it's a house in the village. And uh, we get to go out there fishing. Uh, once or twice a year, we do a spring trip and a fall trip. But my family thought I was going to come up here and talk about the biggest fish I ever caught out there, so I'm going to talk about the third biggest fish I ever caught out there. <laughs> Just to make it a little different. But um, I got a good friend. I got a good friend who just moved to Montana. 
and he was my best fishing buddy. And I've been out there about five, six days, and he comes out with me, and he's like, all right, I'm here. It's time. We're going to catch some big fish. Um, let's get down to it. And uh, sure enough, we go out first day. We, we have been doing pretty good. I don't know what kind of size trout they got in the Boise River. I haven't fished it. But there's some big fish up in Alaska. And uh, we pulled a 28-inch rainbow out the first day, which was good. We, uh, we've been struggling. We've been getting 24, 25. So we get a big fish out first day. <laughs> and we go to the next spot. And uh, we're feeling good. We're like, all right, this is, this is it. This is the day. And uh, I hook up on this fish. And I've just been getting into spay fishing, so it's all fly fishing. And I hook up on this fish way out there, and it's just it's jumping. It's taking off. And they always said that the big fish don't really jump. They just kind of dive down deep. They stay low. Well, this thing just blew up out of the water over and over again. It jumps five, six times. I'm looking at it way down the river. I'm like, oh, that looks like a big fish. This is getting serious. And uh, it just like tires itself out in two minutes. And I'm going in, we're trying to land it, and I have a decision to make. I was like, do I pull this thing into the really weedy section right here, or do I walk it down like another, I don't know, 40, 50 feet and try and land it on the, the only rock bank I can see? And it kind of just comes all the way into me, and I get it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, this is. A serious fish we got to get this I got to get a picture of this thing and it uh, it dives off into this little creek this little like cut bank so all the, the rivers flowing in really hard to this section of the dirt and it's got all the roots coming down and my line gets tangled up in the thing and all of a sudden my lines tight and I saw the fish already I was like well I gotta, I gotta get this fish I'm not gonna let this fish go and uh, I run over, and I'm waist deep in the water, running over. And uh, I get there, and I'm looking at it, and it's the fish is here, and the line's all tangled up here. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to grab the line in between. We'll cut it. I'll pull this thing in, and we'll get them. Sounded great. I was like, yeah, this is a foolproof idea. I got this. <laughs> and uh, as soon as I grab that line, the hook pops out of the fish's mouth. And so I got about three feet of water, but I got it kind of blocked off from the river. And I was like, all right, well, uh, I'm just going to just dive in the river right here. I'm going to block the deep section, and he's going to have to go that way. And uh, sure enough, it worked. I was like, I jumped in that. I jumped in the deep spot, and I pushed the fish over here, and I'm like shoving all the water. Like trying to, I'm not even touching the fish. I'm just shoving the water, and I'm pushing the fish up onto the bank with just the force of the water. And I do it about two, three times. Meanwhile, I've jumped upriver with my waders on into it. So now I'm just, just fully soaked completely. This is also like October 8th in Alaska, so I don't know if that, that like the water temperature is like 42 or something. And um, yeah, get them. I get them all the way up on the bank, and I got them in the grass. And I'm like, all right. I didn't think that would work at all. This is. So now I'm like, all right, where's my picture, buddy? I'm like, oh, he's, I sent him the other way. So he's about like 200 yards up the river. And I sat there and I looked at that fish for a moment and I was like, well, that was a pretty cool experience. I liked it, he jumped out of the water, I caught him, I didn't think I'd catch him. I'm pretty sure if I did that 50 more times, it would have never happened. He would have got around me somehow. And uh, I was like, all right, well, 
And I like catch and release. I don't keep the trout or anything. I was like, well, I gotta get a picture of this fish. So now I grab the fish and I'm just like running up the river with this fish. And I was like, every like, every like 30 seconds, I jump over in the river and I put him back down for a minute. I'm like, he's gonna be good. I just breathe him a little bit. And then uh, 30 more seconds, I jump back on the bank. And I'm, now I got like, I don't know how many gallons of water could fit in my waders. But there's, there's got to be like 20 or something. So like me trying to run with 20 gallons of water rushing around in my waders, it's cold. And I'm like, and I'm yelling, but it's, it blows. I mean, it, it was a light wind day. It was blowing 35. So it's blowing 35. My buddy's upriver. I can't hear him. I'm trying to call him down. I'm like, just come help me. Just come get this picture. And I finally get up to the boat. And I'm standing there on the boat. And I'm just like, hold the fish up real fast. Like, hey, maybe he'll see it above the weeds. <laughs> so he comes down. He finally comes down. I get it. I put it in the net. The fish is fine. We snap a couple pictures um, and we let it go. And we're both just sitting there. And I was like, wow, that's got to be one of my best fishing stories. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks for letting me tell it. Please welcome our storyteller, Amos. I also didn't think my name was going to get picked, but here I am. Um, so my name is Amos, and uh, I've worked in, in, in politics for a very long time, uh, pretty much since I was a little kid. Um, and it's brought me a lot of weird places uh, with some very addicted and compulsive people uh, <laughs> who are kind of on the circus train of the, of the campaign life. Um, and one of my jobs I had was I worked in Washington, D.C., uh, and I had a group of people who had worked under me, and um, I would hire them to go film political candidates and members of Congress uh, giving speeches, and then I would ask them to run after them after they were done and ask them a series of ridiculous questions so that we could get them saying something stupid on tape and make a commercial out of it. Uh, it was a very interesting job. And, uh, you know, it, I have no regrets. There is no, this did not help society or make this country a better place, but it paid my bills. <laughs> and sometimes when jobs were very intricate and weird, I would go have to do them. Um, and what I did was something called tracking. Uh, we'd, track, we'd track people running for office, and we would, uh, would try to get them on, on tape. So I was working in DC, and I was told uh, after I got back from my 20-minute lunch break, which was a good day, uh, that I would have to be on a flight to Atlanta that night. Um, and to go home and pack a backpack and come back to the office and we'd talk about what would happen next. It's like, okay. So, um, you know, when you get into these campaign environments, especially in DC and especially in competitive years, it becomes a blood sport. Compulsion is everything. Everything, uh, you know, this, this team work around you, you're, you're all disgusting, you're all chain smoking, you're all eating crappy food and you're all miserable together and you're really, compelled to just keep going. 
So we were working on a congressional race in, in Atlanta, and uh, the race was very close, and we knew the guy was having a fundraiser down the street from us. Um, and he was going to be going back to Atlanta that night. So it was my job to wait at the airport and buy a ticket for the last two flights out uh, from a DC to Atlanta and hop on the plane with him and try to record him on the airplane. And um, I was like, well, I don't really have an option here, so that's what I'm going to do tonight. So I was waiting at the airport. The first flight comes and goes. And I texted my boss, and I was like, I don't know, the second flight's about to close. I, I haven't seen him yet. And um, sure enough, it was like seconds before the, the boarding door closed, and I see him run onto the plane. I said, he's here. And my boss calls me immediately and says, get on that plane. And I was like, all right, I'll get on this plane. And so I uh, worked, I mean, full disclosure, I worked in Republican politics. And they hired me because I didn't look like a Republican. <laughs> Because I had a, a beard and I wore a lot of tie-dye and I was from Oregon and it didn't make a lot of sense uh, why I was there at all, but I was. And so they said, put on your finest tie-dye t-shirt and get on this plane and ask this guy questions. I said, all right, sure. So I, I lean over in his first class seat and I start asking him questions about everything. I'm pretending like I'm a mega fan, a super mega fan. And I'm asking him all these questions about his campaign plan and all these questions about his fundraising. And I'm just leaning, and he's in the window aisle, so I'm leaning over this poor guy who paid way too much for a very short flight in the aisle seat uh, to harass this man running for Congress. And um, I was sitting in the first class, in, or first, first seat in coach. We land. And uh, I texted my boss. I said, you know, I, I, I talked to him on the plane and he says, okay, great. Now talk to him in the airport. And I was like, all right, I guess this is, this is the job ahead. And so I just started noticing myself getting more and more anxious. I was like, okay, he's going to be getting out of here really quickly. I have to grab my bag. I have to grab everything, and I have to just chase him and get him on camera to talk to me, a super fan who's asked him a million questions that I shouldn't know anything about on, a, on an airplane. And um, so I start, he gets out, I'm waiting, I'm grabbing my bag, and the lady in front of me, who was very old and very sweet because I talked to her on the plane, was taking her time. And I was getting very impatient. And I finally get out of the airport, uh, or out of the airplane, and running through the airport at this point. I'm, I see him, and I, he sees me. He turned back. And I am now, we've locked eyes, and I am now running. <laughs> through the Atlanta airport in a tie-dye t-shirt, Birkenstocks, and khaki pants, which is a weird combo to be running in. And I am chasing him down, and he is running at full speed through the entire airport. And I have my phone out and ready. And I just am running, running, running. I see him through baggage claim, and I am chasing him through baggage claim. He opens the door. There's a car waiting for him. He, Someone, a staffer, opens the minivan side door and he hops in and they drive off like they just robbed a bank. And I was like, God, I missed him. And so I text my boss, I didn't get him in the airport. And he said, well, you're already there. Like, let's make use of time. And I was like, well, I see he has this meeting tomorrow in his office for a volunteer event. I'll just go and volunteer. 
So I wear the same clothes I do, the exact same hat, khaki shirts, tie-dye, T-shirt, and Birkenstocks, and I'm waiting in his office for him the next day. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel very creepy, very creepy. And I'm 25, and I'm like, oh, I want to make it in politics. This is a terrible idea. If anyone's thinking this is a, a noble and, and glamorous industry, I'm telling you this story. I hope you're listening. So I am eating all their free pizza and drinking all their soda, and I'm waiting for him. And sure enough, in comes a whole crew from CNN. And he's right behind them, and they're filming him. This is a big race. It's getting national attention. And he sees me, and he's like, oh, my God. I saw it on his mouth. He mouthed those words. And I came up to him, and I'm like, perfect. My boss will know I'm here. CNN's recording this whole thing. <laughs> and so we're talking, and I'm asking him all these questions again, very specific. And he's like dodging them left and right and left and right. And uh, I'm like, well, let's get a selfie. And um, so I get one. I get in the car. I have all my pictures and all my news, you know, stuff I was going to send to the news. I get in the car to the airport, I send it all. All the, the news story breaks before I get in the airplane and takes off. And a year goes by. He lost that race. A year goes by. And I get an email from my boss, and he said he was on a panel with the woman that ran that campaign. And he told her the story about this time when this kid who worked for him wore a tie-dye t-shirt and khaki pants and Birkenstocks and chased him through the airport. And she said, um, you know, he didn't go out of the house for two weeks after that happened. <laughs> and I ended up back in Georgia. He ran for Senate, and I saw him again. And I really wanted to apologize. I knew he'd recognize me. So we were at a campaign event. I was working for the, his opposition. And he walks by. I was going to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't really know how to say it. But he looks me right in the eye, and he stopped and froze and turned the other way. And we never spoke ever again. Holly. Sitting in the middle. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Thanks for sharing your stories. It's been really fun. My name's Holly, and... I didn't want to think about cravings because, as Beth said, the pandemic does weird things to our cravings that I'm not ready to admit to myself yet. So I was like, no, I don't have anything to say. And then Nicole slash Tiffany, as you were introduced, um, she mentioned Nampa. I was like, oh, yeah, my childhood. Um, that's where I grew up. And I grew up in a pretty religious culture. And those of you who also did know that cravings can bring a lot of messed up thoughts to a person, like a lot of shame, right? If you crave anything normal or natural, like sex. Oh, I crave sex. Oh, you're a terrible, terrible creature. Why would you do that? So cravings kind of are tied to, yeah, it can be tied to a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And I remember growing up, like, all I wanted to do when I was like a preteen is read those stinking like pre preteen magazines, you know, like Vogue, but there was like the 17 and the, even like a younger kid version. My mom said, no, 
I don't want you to have bad body image. <laughs> so she got me instead a magazine that was like a Bible. It had like Bible verses, but like coupled with like makeup tips. <laughs> so this is like <laughs> my magazine. And so what I would do is take my cousin's 17 magazines, slide those babies right inside my Bible magazine. And my mom came in the room, like, hi mom, how's it going? And so I was really reading what I wanted to read. Um, but it was kind of, it's kind of interesting, like these feelings around, you know, growing up with religion and, and the, you know, the guilt that comes with it, but also the, the legacy, the heritage, the connections. You know, when I was eight years old, my grandma had cancer. And I was at a friend's house, and my mom was going to go to the hospital to see her. And I just had this weird feeling like I should go. And I did. And my grandma and I, like, she used to make all the girl cousins these frilly little dresses. And she would... She played the piano, and I, would, I learned to sing with her. As she played the piano, I would sing songs with her. And so in her hospital room that day, she wasn't responsive or aware, I don't think. But I sang to her, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because that's the hymn that she taught me on the piano. And that was the last time I ever saw her. And so, you know, growing up, I started to really rethink, you know, what I was taught and if I believed it and if it fit in my life and kind of came to my own conclusions about, not even conclusions is the wrong word because it's still very fluid, but came to my own way of seeing the world that didn't quite match. And it was kind of like a disconnection, right, from the bad, but also from the good. So it's been kind of weird to, to balance. And a couple years ago, my grandpa, my grandma's husband, uh, he, was also on his deathbed, and I had the opportunity to sit with him, and I sang to him, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And it was really interesting, because I didn't, I didn't quite believe the words in the song anymore, but I believed the heritage of my family, and I believed our connection and our love, and that was just my way of having some kind of love language with him. And that was the last time I ever saw him. And so now, sometimes I get cravings right, for that belief system that is no longer quite what it was, but there's still all these ties. I'm still compelled, right, to seek it out, to figure it out, to figure out where I fall in my family line, my family heritage, uh, and what that looks like now for me and what that means. So it's just a new way of thinking about all of that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Mm-hmm.